Sir Balper and the team of the Brass. Of course, it's Stooley. This is Fangraph Study. My guest on this edition of Fangraph Study making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. He's the managing editor of Fangraph's is Dave Cameron. And what follows Dave Cameron, as he does every week, attempts to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, this edition of Fangraph Study, it is opening day. It's literally, I literally, I talked to Dave Cameron literally in the middle of opening day as the uh, Red Sox and the Phillies were on my screen. And of course, the Red Sox and Phillies were, uh, that's a somewhat relevant because over the offseason, there were conversations. One assume, it seems there were conversations between the Philadelphia Phillies and Boston Red Sox, trading Cole Hamels perhaps for Mookie Betts, maybe someone else besides Mookie Betts. Today, Mookie Betts had a home run off Cole Hamels. Meaningful? Uh, probably not in a substantial way, but good for the narrative at least. We discussed that in some little depth. We discussed that in some little depth. Also, Kyle Kendrick is surprising opening day. The, he struck out a number of brewers. Is what is, that's exactly what I remember about what happened. Uh, also, we discuss, we have to discuss the Craig Kimball trade. Called the Craig Kimball trade, but there were a number of other parties involved between Atlanta, San Diego, all that. Uh, that's uh, we discuss all of that and more uh, regarding opening day and other matters concerning opening day. Uh, finally, and also probably uh, lastly, least importantly in this case, uh, Dave Cameron uh, took it upon himself. To offer uh, one succinct opinion about my career. You're <laughs> really plumbing the depths. Fangraphs Audio features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Is there, are the games over from? This, from the one o'clock starts, or what's going on there? Yeah, you you haven't paid attention. No, I the, I can't not like, following them all simultaneously. No. Yeah, if only there was like a the baseball site on the web that had like live updated scores, I know, like does. win probability and <laughs> yeah, okay, and all right, all right. Uh, yeah. So the the Yankees lost; they looked bad. Uh, the Twins lost; they looked terrible. Uh, the Brewers have not officially lost, but they have lost. They actually, well, according to the internet, they're still in the sixth or seventh inning or something. Yeah, but that game's over. Right, right, but it's um, effectively over. Yeah, you've actually requested, you've actually requested that someone write about Kyle Kendrick already, and I don't even think he's done for the day. Uh, yeah, I mean Kyle Kendrick is getting strikeouts and uh, ground balls, which is you know one of those two things Kyle Kendrick has done before, and it's not the strikeouts. Um, he's he's. He's pitching like an opening day starter. Yeah. But he's not, he's not before, like, two hours ago, you would have thought that was an inappropriate designation for Kyle Kendrick. <laughs> well, well, he is an opening day starter in that he's better than the other four guys in the Rockies rotation. Okay. All right. Uh, but the Rockies rotation is a, an abomination. Uh, right. but yeah, Kyle Kendrick's actually not pitching like an abomination. Although given the fact the Brewers are down 10 nothing early in, uh, their home opener, maybe they were all just, uh, had a little too many sausages and, and beer and cheese curds last night. Or maybe they were all very excited about Wisconsin getting to the national title game and they forgot to prepare for their own. To expedite why well, I was, I was, uh, following along and I, I believe that there were, uh, there were Wisconsin chants rising up from the crowd and people exiting early. Maybe uh, the... I mean, you know, if I had to sit through a, a 10 nothing game a few hours before uh, my college basketball team was playing for national title, I'm pretty sure I would just uh, leave and go prepare for the hopefully more entertaining evening version of their Divert uh, attention. Sport, sporting day. Actually, I'm going to be, along with David Temple, uh, we will be uh, caretakers of the, the uh, live blog extravaganza. 
Oh, yeah, during during the National Championship yeah, game. Yeah, during the National Championship game. <laughs> Good call, Carson. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. Well, claim that one. Well, we'll see. There might be some – I think it's. I think it would be admissible, don't you? And <laughs> you're you're going to live blog the basketball game? No, no, but to have uh, the occasional mention of it. I think so, yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, a big there's event. Only, there's only two late baseball games anyway, right? So. Right. Yes. Yeah, right. And, I will uh, say, I, like, one of the odd scheduling quirks of the day – is that uh, at the 7 o'clock hour, which is generally when 7 o'clock Eastern is when most baseball games start during the year, right. or a lot of them anyway, uh, there's one game, and it features the Houston Astros. So there's a portion of the day where the only game you can watch is the Houston Astros play the Cleveland Indians, and then that's followed by two late games. They really want uh, everyone to watch their baseball early and then go to bed, apparently. The, the um, Actually, it's a, it, it's, it's a matchup of interesting pitchers, though, because they were both pitchers who had... Uh, seasons last year that I think that I could see you could say that they both both pitchers exceeded expectations in Dallas Keuchel and Corey Kluber. Yeah, well, I don't think either had many expectations. Kluber, you know, you had you had expectations I for him know. probably, yeah. <laughs> but but not anyone else. But yeah, yeah, I mean, two guys who came out of nowhere. Uh, Kluber uh, maybe more successfully than Keuchel. Right, but in in Keuchel, <clears throat> well, Keuchel emerged, wasn't it? Like a huge, like didn't he post one of the highest ground ball rates like since? Since yeah, Derek 60, Lowe, sixty-four percent, I think. Right, yeah, it was it was points above uh, anyone yeah. else. Not not anywhere close. He's right. like the most extreme. I think when you do those like ground ball and strikeout rate charts, he's like an outlier on an island by himself. Right, which yeah, I yeah. guess is that's what an outlier that's is. That's what an outlier yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. He's an outlier combined, <laughs> just tucked away with everyone else. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, very good. So, uh, just quickly with regard to Kendrick, is there any reason? Did you did you watch any of that game then? A little bit. Uh, I've been experimenting with various MLB TV streams today, and the Brewers-Rockies game was the only one working for me particularly well earlier. I assumed I was the only person watching the Brewers-Rockies game. Uh, And yeah, so I watched uh, Troy Tulowitzki and Nolan Arenado and and, uh, Corey Dickerson Dickerson and uh, Carlos Gonzalez all hit the ball very hard off of Kyle Loesch. And then I watched Kyle Kendrick pitch a little bit, but he wasn't as entertaining as, you know, the hitters. I mean, did his stuff... I mean, listen, at a certain point... <laughs> There's not a lot of reason to like to watch Kyle Kendrick starts right. because especially you're like, in a very low leverage seven nothing game. Right. No, but I'm saying like over the last five years or whatever. Yeah. No, he's been bad. Right. Yeah. Or I mean, he's been you know he's been good enough to no. hold a major league job, which is great. No, he was he was on the Phillies. So. <laughs> but the point is that the uh, the point is that. Uh, he, there hasn't been a reason to like follow up and be like, oh, I wonder what's going on with Kyle Kendrick these days. But <laughs> right. this this seems to give one the reason you actually you actually you accidented your way into a Kyle Kendrick start when he was pitching well. Did you notice? Was there anything different about the stuff than what you had seen previously? So I will though that like Kendrick's generally I think a fastball change splitter guy. I mean, depending on what you want to call it, uh, his slider actually looked okay today. I mean, I haven't watched a lot of Kyle Kendrick over the years, so I can't say that it looked better than it has previously. But he was getting some swings and misses on his slider, which I think is unusual for Kyle Kendrick. He generally is a you know whatever like a 91 mile an hour fastball guy who tries to get to his changeup and, and uses that as his out pitch. He looked a little bit better than that, but you know. When you're beating the other team ten nothing, it's hard not to look good. Yeah. So do you? I mean, could this just also be uh, randomness that seems like more than randomness because it's the first day of the season? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's any question that there's some chance that all the Brewers playing badly is some environmental effect where 
you know, maybe the Brewers hitters and Kyle Loesch were all terrible today for the same reason. We'll find out after the game that they were all, you know, playing with 106 temperatures and Kyle Kendrick is only good when he's playing guys from the infirmary. I, you know, it's not necessarily the most likely option, but when everyone on the team craps the bed on opening day, there might be some reason for it besides the other team is really good. Uh, you're, let's, uh, I would like to extract a great deal of meaning. So you, you mentioned Kyle Kendrick. We mentioned Kyle Kendrick. He pitched for the Phillies. Uh, the Phillies are currently playing right now. They happen to be playing a team in the Boston Red Sox, uh, uh, who, both of which teams were involved in many rumors involving the other. Specifically, Cole Hamels going to Boston, who would have, you know, like any team would have benefited from another starter, but Boston in particular, I guess. In exchange, there were rumors it would be in exchange for Mookie Betts. Uh, the Red Sox seem to consider that too high a price. And Mookie Betts homered off Cole Hamels today. Yeah, and then Dustin Bedroya homered off him twice, and Haley Ramirez is homered off of him. Yeah. Uh, so Cole, Cole Hamill's debut against the team that <clears throat> he may or may not have been auditioning for later in the season yeah. has not gone so well. Not going well. Yeah. And uh, um, again, this is opening day, so things appear to have more meaning than they probably do. But one wants to, or uh, and when I say one, I mean Carson Sestouli. Uh, wants to d- d- extract a great deal from this in terms of narrative to say that, um, and I think that it has been uh, uh, repeated already a number of times that it's obvious that the Red Sox won the offseason not trade. Uh, yeah, right, because of one game. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the Red Sox were absolutely right to not trade Mookie Betts for Cole Hamels, and that would have been true whether Cole Hamels uh, gave up 40 home runs today or no home runs, or what, whether Mookie Betts homered in all of his at-bats or didn't even get the ball out of the infield. Uh, you know, you'd rather have Mookie Betts for the next six years than Cole Hamels, uh, regardless of cost, and then you factor in that Hamels is dramatically more expensive, and it's not even close. So right. good job, Red Sox, keeping Mookie Betts. The fact that Mookie homered off of uh, Hamels today is like a nice little piece of uh, trivia or, or fun maybe, but not something that we should draw any conclusions from. Uh, I'm sure the Red Sox though probably feel a little better about their decision today than the Phillies did. The, uh, but it does it it, it it is meaningful in one way I guess right is that Mookie Betts um, he, he has been he's actually been more polarized. Like I didn't realize he was a polarizing figure. Um, I think until this off season for some reason I just always regard him as like a pretty. Uh, well not always, but uh, for the last couple of years, uh, as a promising young player in the Red Sox system who had a pretty nicely uh, sort of like a broad base of offensive skills. Um, I didn't realize he was so polarizing. Uh, I guess the projections have uh, sort of esteem him more highly than the scouting sort of uh, information might, uh, especially his 5'9 person. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think there's definitely some of that. Uh, and I think there's also, you know, especially on Twitter, there's kind of an undercurrent of people who – you know, may not be the biggest fans of ours. And a lot of them happen to reside in Philadelphia. <laughs> and they did not like our comments about Cole Hamels and his trade value and what the Phillies should be able to get for him. Uh, and they didn't like the fact that some, you know, five foot nine, low powered, you know, middle infielder who was changing positions was worth more than their number one starter. Uh, and so I think there's some, you know, maybe, uh, anger or frustration with Mookie Betts that doesn't have anything to do with Mookie Betts. It has to do with comments about uh, the relative trade value of prospects and aces and people who don't necessarily like, you know, uh, asset value calculations or surplus value or, or these kinds of financial concepts. They just, you know, want to judge a player based on talent. overall talent or something. And, and Cole Hamels probably is a more talented baseball player than Mookie Betts uh, at the moment. Maybe not dramatically so, but he's probably a little bit better. Uh, or at least he has more of a track record of, of playing at the level that Betts might reach uh, this year. And I think, you know, 
uh, people who don't necessarily like the way that Fangraphs talks about baseball found kind of a, uh, 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 horse to ride in the Mookie mm-hmm. bets, uh, or the anti-Mookie bets sentiment. Well, uh, but, uh, I guess hitting a home run today proves that Mookie bets can hit home runs in the major leagues, which is something he had done before, but, uh, it's a good, if, if you have one plate appearance or even three plate appearances of sample and one of them is a home run, that probably suggests to you that that could happen again. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about hitting a home run in the major leagues is it tells you at least you're probably not Ben Revere. And it moves <laughs> you out of that category. Yeah, so, like, yeah. right, the fact that Cole, that uh, Mookie Betts can do this uh, tells you, like, you know, he's probably not uh, a slap-hitting guy who's, uh, you know, Luis Castillo or something like that. But, yeah, I mean, you know, it's still one game. Uh, he might not hit another home run for a couple months. He's never going to be a huge home run guy. This isn't You're not trading for Mookie Betts expecting 20 home runs. The nice thing about his skill set is he can hit 10 and still be a very good player. Right. Uh I already among the top uh, t- one of the after one plate appearance among the um, among the league's uh, war leaders you'll be happy to know is Mike Trout who has homered in his first plate appearance. Yeah, off Felix Fernandez. So if you're adjusting for pitcher quality and it's in Safeco Field, so adjust for ballpark as well. That was yeah. uh, one spectacular home run. Oh, that's pretty good. And then, and, uh, there is a, um, if people are looking at the same exact time as me, 446 Eastern, uh, at our, at our live leaderboards, they'll notice that an unnamed player is, uh, currently fourth in the league in, in wins above replacement. I'm guessing that's probably Devin Travis. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's yeah, Devin no. Travis. Uh, yeah. he's not in the system because this is his major league debut. Yeah, but he had a pretty good debut. Yeah, he did. He did. A couple yeah, of walks in the dinger. I saw Tanaka early on in the game, and uh, he looked pretty strong. But and um, you turned it off before he started looking terrible. Well, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, but he struck out. He got a lot of swinging strikes, regardless. So yeah. So I mean, I watched most of the Yankees Blue Jays game, probably the first six innings or so. And uh, the thing that struck me early is like he, he was almost all splitters at the beginning of the game. Uh, very few fastballs. Definitely was not. Uh, what you expect from the first start of the year. I think, you know, Jeff Sullivan's written that, like, the first pitch of the first season of opening day is almost always a fastball. Like, 99.9% of the time it's a fastball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tanaka, and generally pitchers just, you know, they come out and they establish their fastball in the first couple innings of their first start of the year. Tanaka came out and established his splitter, and he would throw his fastball occasionally, but it was not a, not a very frequently used pitch. Early in the game, the Blue Jays were helping him out, and they chased a lot of splitters down out of the zone. And then by the third, fourth, fifth inning, I think they figured out that, like, this is basically his entire game plan is get us to chase splitters at our ankles. If we can stop doing that, there's not a lot else here, and they stopped doing it for the most part, and they still chased him sometime. It's a, it is difficult to tell the difference between Tanaka's splitter and his fastball. So they, you know, went after some of them, and, they, and he was able to get some strikeouts that way. But uh, he also started falling behind in counts, and then he had to throw something besides the splitter. Uh, and that, those are the pitches that really got punished. And so, you know, I think that's going to be the thing to watch with Masahiro Tanaka is if he's uh, reduced to a one-pitch guy, uh, one effective pitch anyway, uh, I don't think this is going to work. That splitter is really good, but if he's throwing 87 miles an hour and people aren't chasing his fastball or, you know, or aren't swinging missing at his fastball and, and they can just lay off the splitter or lay off pitches down in the zone thinking that it's probably a splitter, uh, Tanaka is probably not going to be that effective this year. I'd also like to say um, that that combination of, the, um, the anecdotally at least, the, there's been sort of like a, a type of pitcher that has uh, produced lots of swinging strikes and has uh, good sort of field and independent numbers, but has uh, given up a lot of hits and home runs. And I'm thinking of like Roy Halladay, the, the injured version of Roy Halladay, yeah. The less effective version of Tim Lincecum, the uh, 
whatever CC Sabathia was last year. Cliffley as well. Right, yeah. And I'm curious, has there been any research done on on this as an indicator? Maybe you, you there's a, a – the rates, certain rates sort of maintain their levels, but then there are just uh, – there's a lot of hitting going on and maybe some decreased velocity at the same time. Yeah, I think uh, – I can't say exactly who wrote it or when, but I think uh, maybe a year or so ago I wrote a, read a piece by someone who basically established uh, very high Babapin home run rates at the, happening at the same time are an indicator of injury, uh, mm-hmm. where they're not always that, and sometimes it's just, you know, bad luck. But uh, those things can go together at the same time that stuff just falls apart, and you see a guy who's probably pitching through an injury or pitching with significantly diminished stuff – uh, to where you'd look at it and be like, well, his walk and strikeout rates are fine because maybe his off, the secondary stuff is still good. Maybe he still throws a change up pretty hard, uh, or, you know, has the, has the movement to get swings and misses, but the primary pitch, the fastball is just so weak that it's getting crushed or he's missing his spots or, or, you know, uh, pitching in a way that such as it's easy to hit him, uh, or easier to hit him than it would be, you know, a healthy major league pitcher. And so I think there is something to this idea that if you're running a 390 BABIP and, you know, 1.5 homer per nine, and you do it for an extended period of time, uh, there, there's a chance, uh, maybe even a decent chance, that there's something physically wrong. Yeah, I would not be surprised to find that uh, Jeff Zimmerman had written that article. I wouldn't be shocked either. I, I can't guarantee he did, but it wouldn't surprise me because right. this is the thing he's interested in. And it, that is something to point out. Uh, Jeff, Jeff Zimmerman has done um, a lot of good work. I think uh, both of the, the rotograph side of things and also on the main site about uh, indicators of injury um, yep. and um, just what, even also what to expect, like entering any given season, what percentage of the starting pitchers, you know, in the various rotations you can expect to – you know, miss X number of starts or will, you know, miss the rest of the season with Tommy John surgery. Jeff Zimmerman is sort of a, uh, um, he's be kind of uh, kind of cornered the market on, uh, on that kind of stuff, at least as, so as far as publicly available. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of the things that, uh, baseball is a long way to travel on is predicting injuries, predicting, uh, the severity of injuries, kind of the, you know, the value lost from pitching through pain. Uh, this is a, a big, mi- a big mine to be mined. I mm-hmm. guess, uh, I'm not sure what else you'd do with a mine besides mine it. Uh, this is an, an area of study that I think, uh, Jeff has done a great job with. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I will say, as I'm looking at these, um, the, the scores right now, and I will say Jace Peterson, this is <laughs> need to know information. Jace Peterson is one for one. I'm sure you're going to break into the live blog tonight to give us many Marcus Semien updates as well. Oh yeah, that's yeah, I will do that. Um, yeah. uh, there's a cool thing though at the game, uh, if you look under the game graphs at the site now um, with the scores, uh, there's actually a live um, live strike zone updates. Yeah, it's uh, not not with velocity or pitch type, uh, but kind of to give you an idea of where the pitches are and where they're being called. Uh, a pretty neat little tool where you can see like last night in the, uh, Cubs Cardinals game, Mike Winters decided everything from, uh, Canada to Asia was a strike. And so you can say like, man, this is a really wide strike zone and have a graphical representation of it as the game goes on. Now, if I'm looking at this, is this from the catcher's point of view? It is, yes. Okay, alright. Cause I'm seeing now, for example, uh, Julio Tehran facing Giancarlo Stanton, a called strike on a ball that was, uh, inches inside. Uh, so then I could start to say, well, maybe uh, maybe this particular umpire is uh, a little bit liberal on the inside corner with right-handed batters. 
Or maybe who's the catcher for the Braves? Christian Betancourt. Not not necessarily a great framer by the metrics, but certainly one that the Braves think highly of defensively. Perhaps yeah. this is a, a indication of Betancourt stealing one. Stealing one, yeah. I noticed there was a lot more talk about that um, on the ESPN broadcast last night. Kurt Schilling, I think especially, was uh, making a point to bring it up as often as he could. Yeah, he could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess, well, that's an indication of a number of things, but one that uh, this notion of uh, catchers producing runs or saving runs um, by means of framing it has uh, it has uh, sort of some legs in terms of the research of it goes it has uh, sort of legs in the in the, the, the mainstream yeah I mean I think this is kind of the gonna be the year where this research which has been pretty probably the most um, uh, intriguing bit of research to come out of our nerdy community in the last couple of years, this is probably the year that it goes mainstream. I think, you know, ESPN and some of these other uh, kind of outlets are picking up on it and starting to give it uh, a bit more public notice. And now, especially with ESPN's live K-Zone thing that they displayed uh, in their first game last night, I wouldn't be surprised if this came more to the forefront and, and viewers were more aware of things like the lefty strike or the bottom of the strike zone uh, getting more calls and really honing in on guys like Jonathan McCroy or Yadier Molina who uh, specialize at this skill. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, it is a, I don't know what, we don't have to dwell, I don't want, I don't want to dwell on it in length, but uh, I was, there was obviously, uh, there was some commotion to, uh, regarding the, like the, the full-time live strike zone. Yeah. Function on the ESPN broadcast. Yeah, um, I, I guess it's it's a sort of nod to this idea that the strike zone is an important place on the baseball field. Uh, although I will say, uh, personal preference, I, not that this matters, but I will say that, uh, for example, I was watching the Yankees Blue Jays uh, broadcast, and I think it was the Blue Jays the uh, feed. They 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 just have the live strike zone. I think the Red Sox do this too. Live strike zone to the right of the screen. Right. It's live, and you can see where the ball goes, but it's not necessarily interacting. With the players, really. It's not, well, yeah, I mean, it's not overlaid on top of, like, the way ESPN did it is they essentially shaded out, yeah. uh, all of the normal, and then they, uh, had the color more contrasted in the strike zone area, so it was differentiated in, from the rest of the screen, which, uh, was a little bit distracting. I didn't hate it by the end of the night, but I understood why some people didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, and it certainly was, rather than just having, like, a additional graphic off to the side, it was something you couldn't choose to avoid if you didn't want to. Uh, which I know people are big fans of choice uh, and often uh, hate change. Yes, yeah. Well, I will say Paul Swyden wrote to me and said that uh, he he was in love with it because it didn't require that the broadcast show uh, show a replay of every pitch. Yeah. But what Paul that, what that indicates though is Paul does not make a lot of animated yeah. gifs because right. if he did, didn't really want the replays. You yeah. want replays as often yeah. as possible. Yes. Right. Yeah. I think that's going to be one of the interesting things, especially. Uh, going forward as MLB is, uh, you know, trying to roll out StatCast and maybe trying to take over some of the, uh, ownership of their digital content. Uh, I would not be surprised if, uh, there was eventually some kind of, you know, GIF replacement technology and MLB just supplied, uh, almost like a GIF channel, uh, that was like, hey, do you want to make your own GIF of a play and, and share it? Uh, here's a way to do it, but it has to be through MLB TV. Well, fine. That, as long as you can produce it, that's all that Yeah, I mean, I think that's me. that's kind of where we're headed, is right. rather than all of us having these, like, third-party tools and using MLB TV's live broadcast to try and create them, there will be some kind of, like, 
uh, MLB sponsored tool that will have an ad probably, mm-hmm. uh, where it creates it for you. Right, right. Well, Kyle was, was asking me today, you know, uh, oh, like if I brought up a certain pitch, cause I think one thing that Kylie McDaniel wants to do, of course, he's our lead prospect analyst, Dave Cameron. Mm-hmm. He wants to uh, give people a better idea of what a 50 grade, you know, uh, changeup looks like as opposed to a 60 or a 40. Yeah. And so he was saying, well, if I, if I could send you like an, like a particular pitch, you know, could you make a gif of it? <clears throat> we could, uh, you know, make a library of these essentially. Uh, but I was like, first of all, Kylie, you're an intelligent person. If you spent literally, if you spent ten minutes uh, researching how to do it, you could make a GIF. Yeah. Yourself. Maybe even less than that. Yeah, it's not that hard. Now, uh, can you make GIFs, Dave Cameron? I have made them before, uh, not generally high quality ones, and I have taken to abuse my privileges of just ordering others to do it right, instead. All right, all right uh, two more things to discuss uh, before we go. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the trade momentarily, the trade that sent Craig Kimbrell to the San Diego Padres, lest we bury that particular lead. However, I want to ask, um, actually, just as I'm talking to you now, Odubel, Odubel? Odubel, yeah. Odubel Herrera is batting for the Phillies. This is a person who, to the best of my knowledge, has recorded uh, zero plate appearances in the major leagues before today. If he has, uh, then there have been very few of them, right? And, in and, fact, he's, and he, he's never played center field before either. Okay, right. In fact, he, uh, I guess he was what? He was... He, was he a Rule 5 situation? He was a Rule 5 selection. And somehow he's ended up as their starting center fielder after there was a, a Rule 5 pick as a second baseman and they changed him into a center fielder and made him their everyday, everyday player. Right. Yeah. Now, so the reason they're doing this, right, is, I mean, for the Phillies, bad. huh? Because they're bad. Yeah. And you might as well find out if, if Odebel Herrera could have a major league career. Or, you know, and they, what? The, 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 the Phillies just need to be good enough not to alienate the entire fan base. Yes? Uh, I don't, yeah, I mean, yes, uh, they're going to do that, I think. <laughs> I mean, when they trade Cole Hamels and probably Chase Utley and Carlos Ruiz and Jonathan Pavelbon and their best remaining player is Cody Yashi or whatever, you know, random AAA guy they got in a, in a trade that's better than the rest of their roster, uh, the second half Phillies are going to be a train wreck of epic proportions and, uh, any remaining, you know, casual Phillies fan will, uh, Bail entirely on the team for years. Years, right. And then, and, and years later is when they'll be good, presumably. Uh, that would be the hope. I mean, with right. a, whatever, $175 million payroll that they've run over the last couple of years, it's not that anymore, but they've shown the capability to run that. You would think it shouldn't take them five or six years to get back. Uh, if you can spend that much money, you don't need to go into a deep, dark hole, but they're starting from zero. Right. Ab- like, absolute zero. Well, they, <clears throat> JP Crawford and Aaron Nola. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, they have a few things, right. but they're not in a significantly different position than where the Astros were like three years ago. And right. the but the Astros kind of did it on purpose, didn't they? Uh, yeah, right. So the the Astros <laughs> did tank on purpose. The Phillies have gotten here accidentally, which is <laughs> even, even worse, probably. <laughs> okay. Uh, is there Are there any other guys around the – I mean, is – Herrera, no, uh, in a previous edition of the podcast, we talked about the Tuffy Ghost Switch situation. That's the catching yeah. situation in Arizona. Yeah. Uh, Tuffy Ghost Switch, and, um, you know, a surprising choice for starting catcher. But I think he's got defensive skills, maybe. He, yeah, sure. He's not a good catcher. He okay. shouldn't be starting from Major League. He shouldn't be starting from Major League. Uh, are there any other situations like this? Just, um, Kind of, uh, I'm not gonna say shocking because it's not, it's not shocking. You can, I can handle it. I think we can all handle it. But just surprising, uh, surprising opening day starters or even just guys on rosters generally. 
Uh, I mean, you know, besides the Phillies, where I think you could look up and down and be like, man, I didn't even know this guy was still in the major. I mean, Jeff Francoeur made the Phillies, which that tells you something. Well, he's, he's in the 25 man roster. Yeah, he, he uh, made the Phillies as Grady Sizemore's backup, which, you know, you're <laughs> really plumbing the depths That's when you have Grady Sizemore and Jeff Francoeur as part of your outfield team. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, for the most part, there aren't a ton of guys around baseball that are just, like, I can't believe that guy made the roster. Toronto has a few guys who project as, like, replacement-level players, but they're, like, 20-year-olds in A-ball who don't have a statistical track record, but they throw 98 miles an hour, and they're pitching out of the bullpen. So this is, a, what, uh, Miguel Castro and... And Roberto Osuna, yeah. Osuna, right. And Castro made his debut today and was pretty good. In any a third, strikeout, 12 pitches, 7 strikes, like... Uh, you know, there's reasons to think that guys with really good stuff don't necessarily need a ton of high-level experience in order to, you know, throw 98 for 15 pitches. Um, so there's guys like that who are hanging around baseball. But for the most part, besides the Phillies uh, and maybe the Diamondbacks, most teams have found capable major league players to give jobs to. Now, the, uh, those two players, Miguel Castro and Roberto Asuna, they're both quite young. I think they're both 20, 20 right? 20, yeah, 20 years old, yeah. And uh, as you mentioned, they're, I think probably both regarded as having, especially in short stints, uh, good stuff. But I think that they've also worked almost exclusively as starters up till the present moment. Is there any sort of, uh, I mean, you know, historically, what what is the sort of record of, I, I mean, I think of a pitcher like Neftali Feliz, who was known for having great stuff, but came up as a closer and mostly remained a reliever, has remained a reliever. Then Jonathan Papelbon seemed like he could have uh, a future po- possibly as a starter if the Red Sox chose to develop in that way, but they re- he remained a closer. Is is there any sort of danger in uh, bringing, you know, calling a guy up that soon? Do you, you lose developmental time, no? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two ways to do it. And like, so the Earl Weaver way is kind of, I think, what the Blue Jays had talked up and said, you know, they're, they look at all these arm injuries of young kids and think like, whatever baseball's doing is it's not doing something right, so right. they're gonna do something else. Uh, which Earl is giving major league time for the time. Yeah, right, yeah. basically just get them to the big leagues as fast as possible. If they have, you know, it's kind of the only so many bullets theory is like, if a, if a pitcher can only throw so many pitches before his elbow explodes, better to have them in the major leagues than in the minor leagues. Um but, you know, we're not sure that's going to work either. The interesting thing is Earl Weaver used to do this all the time with his relievers back in the 70s, but he broke them in as long relievers. And we didn't really have these one-inning specialists that they had today. So you'd break in these young pitchers, but they'd go two, three, four innings. They'd face hitters multiple times. They'd have to work on multiple pitches. They'd have to pace themselves a little bit. Uh, I think, to me, that's a little bit different than breaking in a guy as a ninth-inning guy or an eighth-inning guy and telling him to throw as hard as possible for 15 pitches. Um, you know, I think over the last decade or so, we've seen a number of top pitching prospects who've been developed as relievers, uh, late-game relievers, who have not panned out very well and have not been able to move back to the rotation. Uh, Brandon Morrow comes to mind. Uh, Neftali Fleas, as you mentioned. Uh, Aroldis Chapman, who, you know, uh, they tried to move him back to the rotation. He was throwing 92, uh, and, and no one really wants to take him out of the closer's role when he was throwing 104. Uh, Trevor uh, Rosenthal, I mean, he was a possible starter, wasn't he? Yeah, here's another example of a guy who's, uh, you know, Carlos Martinez might be on the same path as well, where, you know, you pitch too well out of the bullpen and the team just doesn't want to take you out of that role. So I think there is a little bit of a trap. Uh, but the thing with Osuna and Castro is that these are not elite top tier pitching prospects. These are not the, you know, the number one pitching prospect in baseball types. These are, you know, low level guys who had some interesting, uh, stuff, but, you know, probably weren't going to help the Blue Jays this year in any other fashion. Uh, so you are stalling their development, but maybe not necessarily of a guy that you had a super high expectations for. I think uh, on Kylie's uh, future values, both of them had grades around 45 or 50, which uh, historically means you're expecting 
two or three career war out of these guys, which, so, you know, if you get one war instead of two war, but you get it now, maybe that's not a terrible trade-off, uh, especially if, you know, you can eventually figure out a way to develop them as starters long-term, uh, even if others had failed. Right, okay. All right. Uh, now let's get to the trade. Um, that's the thing. It's a thing. The, <laughs> is nothing really more fitting than the Padres making another trade bef- just to get another one in before the season ends, or before the off-season ends. Uh, they sent to Atlanta, a team with whom they had traded already earlier in the season. That's how they got uh, Justin Upton, among others. Um, they send Cameron Mabin, Carlos Quentin, pitching prospect uh, Matt uh, Whistler, Weisler, Whistler? Whistler, I think. say Whistler. And then the Jordan Perlmbeck. <laughs> I don't know much about him. And then the 41st overall pick. The and they get, uh, in return, they get Kimbrell and Mel, and, and Mel whatever. B.J. Upton, yeah. B.J. Upton, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the um, other, the other Upton, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of outfield, cause the, 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 the Padres already have, already had too many outfielders. Yeah. Now they get rid of two, and they get and they one. And they bring back, back one. And they right. bring back one, right. They, they swap out, uh, backup center fielders, essentially. Right, and, and, I mean, at this point, there's, is it, am I right in thinking there's not a huge amount of difference, at least on the field in 2015, between Cameron Mabin and, and Melvin Upton Jr.? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, in this case, you know, both of them would have served as a defensive replacement for Will Myers or Matt Kemp or whoever, whichever guy they want to take out of the outfield late in games or, you know, move to first base uh, if they're, you know, wanting to go with an all right-handed lineup or something. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're looking at probably 200, 250 plate appearances, uh, and up and starting the year on the disabled list. So for him, maybe even less. Okay. All right. Um, this seems, uh, so you have the outfielders, so you have the multiple outfielders going back to the, the Braves. I think that what isn't the plan just a DFA? Yeah, he's already been Carlos Clinton's already been DFA'd by the Braves, so he he was basically just included as a uh, offsetting salary, and he'll end up in the American League. And if there's any justice, uh, he should uh, go to Texas. They're starting Ryan Rua in left field and Mitch Moreland at DH. Uh, Carlos Clinton is a perfect fit for the Rangers. Uh, he should clearly end up there. Okay, uh, but um, but the. The logic always seems to dictate that you don't want to invest too much in Craig Kimbrell, and this seems like the Padres are investing a lot in Craig Kimbrell. Well, I don't know that logic dictates you don't want to invest too much in Craig Kimbrell. So you don't want to invest too much in relievers. Re- so no, question, I, I, that's what I meant, relievers. Yeah. But the, the question right. is, is Craig Kimbrell a normal reliever? That, that is the question. So, like, if you look at it, the way Jeff Sullivan broke it down uh, on the site last night is that, you know, essentially the, when you take all the contracts and you add them up, uh, the Braves or the Padres are essentially taking on Craig Kimbrell at a three-year, $56 million contract. That's essentially what they're going to pay in net net price gain uh, to have Kimbrell on the team for the next three years. So that's $18 million a year. You think, like, okay, that's not so bad. Uh, you know, David Robertson got uh, $15 million a year for four years, as a, or $14 million a year, something like that, as a free agent this offseason. Uh, you know, we see Andrew Miller, I think, got $12 million a year. I mean, Kimbrell's better than those guys. Uh, and, you know, three-year commitment's shorter than a four-year commitment. So, you know, maybe $18 million a year for Kimbrell's not so bad. Uh, but then they also gave up Matt Whistler, uh, and they gave up the 41st pick in the draft. So if you include those things as having some monetary value, and I don't think there's any question that uh, they do have some value. Whistler is, a you know, a considered around the 50th best prospect in baseball by most of the prospect rankers, uh, which has a, you know, a significant value. We saw Yohan Mankata, who's considered a top 15 prospect or so, signed for $63 million when you include the Red Sox tax. Whistler's not that good, but he's not worth zero. Uh, when you, and you factor in the draft pick, it's not worth, you know, nothing as well. You're probably looking at, you know, 75, maybe even 80, 85 million dollars in total value given up for three years of Craig Kimbrell. I think the Padres basically just put a, 
a value on Kimbrel that's somewhere in the neighborhood of $25 million a year, which is basically double all of the other free agent relievers on the market this winter. Do we think Craig Kimbrel is twice as good as David Robertson? I don't. Yeah, that's a lot. Wow, that's... So at first you had me when you were talking about 358 or whatever. 356, right. That sounds good. Yeah. uh, Yeah, I mean, if you would have just taken the contracts and you just did the contract swaps, maybe that's a fair deal. The fact that the Padres also gave up, you know, maybe their best pitching prospect and a draft pick that could turn into something, probably another uh, in the long line of A.J. Preller overpays to help the 2015 team. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, Whistler pitched last year at AA and was very good, and then as a 21-year-old, Pitched to AAA, his his ERA and FIP were quite high, but he was pitching in the Pacific Coast League right. as a 21 year old, and his strikeout walk rates were were you know not excellent, but not bad. Right. I mean, Whistler might not ever project as an ace. He might really be like a number four or five starter, or maybe even a reliever or something. Like this is not the kind of pitching prospect that you're like, I can't believe you traded Matt Whistler. You know, our franchise is doomed. We're not trying to put so much value on Matt Whistler that it's like the Padres can't win in the future without having a guy like him around. You can develop future Matt Whistler's would be just fine. The reality, though, is, like, Whistler had some significant amount of present value, if, just in terms of cash. If they had gone on the market and said, you know, we just want to sell Matt Whistler for money in order to offset some of this contract we're taking on, uh, you know, they probably could have gotten, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 million dollars from a team like the Astros or the Dodgers or one of these teams that wants to buy prospects. Uh, so if you, you have to include that amount of, uh, kind of financial hit that they're taking and say, you know, we're adding that on to the cost of bringing in Craig Kimbrell because that money could have been respent on something else. And, you know, I, I know that Padres fans like to just kind of look at the top end of the roster and be like, uh, we have these six or seven really exciting all-star type players. We're going to be really good. Stop criticizing us. Uh, but their starting shortstop is still Alexi Amarista. The starting third baseman is still Will Middlebrooks. Uh, their starting first baseman is still Yonder Alonso. Like, you know, the top half of the Padres roster is pretty good and the top half, bottom half is pretty terrible. And when you're spending this much money and this many prospects and, and future commitments, I'm not sure you should not have a better team than what the Padres have. Okay, uh, we're very close to the end. You've almost fulfilled your obligation. Uh, one thing is it appears as though the Marlins have a rain delay because they forgot to close their retractable roof. That is a very Marlins thing to do. <laughs> also, Billy Hamilton just made a really great catch on Andrew McCutcheon. Okay, so that, that's another thing. Uh, and then finally... August Fagerstrom just published his his post. Uh, it's an Instagram post, and it's called "The Evolution of the Two Hole." Is well, it? that's not that's not the headline I told him he could use. <laughs> Did you? I was wondering if you let him. If you yeah, so I, so I'll note for our readers, our listeners who don't know this, this is August Fagerstrom's last week at Fangraphs for a while because he's taking an internship with MLB.com. He's going to be Jordan Bastion's fill-in uh, and and kind of mentee. Uh, on the Indians beat, so we're, we're losing August Fingerstrom for the next six months. So this might have been his way of being like, you have no power over me, I'm going to write a headline that's going to end up <laughs> Okay. So this is August, so kind of doing what he wants on his way out. Yeah. All right. Well, then he did that. All right, you've, d- you've done it, man. It's 37 minutes. That's pretty good. Cool. All right. Oh, God, there's a lot of baseball to watch. It's a good day. It is um, a good day. It we'll is see, a good day. We'll, we'll see how much you watch. I've been, wa- I've been watching all day. Oh, really? Yeah, I really like Like actual them. Major League Baseball, not like uh, Division Three college? <laughs> no, I've been watching all day. I watched, uh, I saw, yeah, I watched the beginning of the Yankees game, then I switched over to the Rockies and like you did. And yeah. then, um, you know, I watched a bunch of this Red Sox game. Um, I saw a lot of, yeah, I saw them hit those home runs. Yeah, cool That's animals, cool. not a good day.
And I took a brief nap because I'm going to be live chatting until 1 a.m. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Do you know what? I never told you, but I, we were doing those live chats during the playoffs last year. And it was the, what it was, uh, Royals and Giants, right? And uh, I had one of the late games, like a West Coast game. And I had had, like, I don't know what I'd been doing that day, but I was tired. And I just, uh, during the middle of the live chat, I fell asleep for like an hour. <laughs> 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 I think That's, there were other people there. Yeah, so. I was going to say, if other people were not chatting with you, I'm pretty sure I would have heard about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, but I did go back and read it. I was like, huh, wonder how much I missed. And um, there were people like, is Carson still here? Like, yeah, yes, well, so. ho- hopefully David Temple is up for the challenge tonight, Ben. Yeah, right, all right. Well, he's on Central Time. He's got a one-hour advantage. Yeah, all right. that helps. Uh, good stuff. I'm uh, All right, uh, let's, say, let's say goodbye to you. Thank you very much, Dave Cameron. Goodbye, Carson. I know. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.